My name is Fred Eaton, and I serve on the pastoral team at Christ City in Kitsilano. And uh, I'm excited to be here this morning. Uh, This is the first time that both our South Van and our Kits congregations have gathered together uh, under one roof to worship together, sit together, and hear God's word together. What a great venue. This is, yes. What a great venue. Um, I can remember coming here to this theater in 1980 and sitting about where my son is sitting right now and watching Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. (laughs) Now, back then... There is no way in the world I could have ever imagined that I would be standing up here 38 years later preaching about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I I grew up in a household where the name of Jesus was just a swear word. I had no knowledge at all of God or the Bible. And pretty much everything I knew about the crucifixion, I learned from Monty Python. I I most definitely had no sense at all of the significance of Good Friday or the death of Jesus Christ. So this morning, what I want to do with you is I want to consider the significance of Good Friday with you from this passage that was read for us earlier in Luke 23, verses 44 to 49. It's on page 6 of the bulletin that you received when you came in. There are three things in this text that I want us to see together this morning. First, the son's death. Second, the centurion's verdict. And third, the father's welcome. Those are my three points. The son's death, the centurion's verdict, and the father's welcome. Let's look at the son's death together. Crucifixion, I don't think we can imagine what that was like. Crucifixion was one of the most brutal, cruel, and humiliating forms of capital punishment that was, it was practiced widely in the ancient world. First by the Persians and the Assyrians and later on by the Greeks and Romans. And they would, they would nail a naked victim through the hands and through the feet to a cross, and, and, and what would happen is there would be a, a slow and gruesome and agonizing death by asphyxiation. In fact, our word, our English word excruciating comes from the Latin word for cross. Now, Jesus' crucifixion in particular 
is very well attested. It's, it's, it's attested by the biblical gospels, but also by non-biblical sources. So we've got the four accounts in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the crucifixion of Jesus is all, also reported on by the ancient Roman historian Tacitus and also by the ancient Jewish historian Josephus. Now, if we were to go over and look at Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, we would see that before, before Jesus was condemned by Pontius Pilate and sent to be crucified, before he was sent to be crucified, he was brutally scourged, which would already get him well on his way to death. He was brutally scourged and then led away. Here's what Luke 23, verses 32 and 33 say. This gives us some of the more immediate context leading up to Jesus' death. It says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, that's Golgotha in Aramaic, there they crucified him and the criminals one on his right and one on his left. So imagine the scene. There's a a rocky hill, a small hill outside the walls of ancient Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, just outside the walls. And Jesus is crucified to a cross. He's nailed to a cross by Roman soldiers. And the other Gospels tell us, if we, if we read on a little bit, that as he, lay, as he hung there on the cross, his life ebbing out of him, as he hung there on the cross, people came by, including some of the religious leaders, and they taunted him, and they mocked him, and they ridiculed him for not being able to save himself. How ironic. And then we read in the passage this morning, in Luke 23, verses 44 and 45, it says that there was darkness, that there was darkness over the whole land. For three hours, there was darkness over the whole land while the sun's light failed. This... This remarkable phenomenon that we read about here, this terrifying phenomenon was a symbol. It was a symbol of God the Father forsaking His beloved Son as He bore the curse and the punishment for our sin. I wonder... I just wonder if the people around the cross that day as the darkness fell, I wonder if they thought about Amos' prophecy in Amos chapter 8. God prophesies through the prophet about the day of judgment. Here's what it says. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only son. Now the rest of the whole New Testament 
repeatedly affirms what that darkness symbolized that day. That in the person of Jesus, God's just punishment, God's just punishment for our sins was being poured out upon him on the cross. And this is the reason why Good Friday is good news for all of those who believe. Referring to that that amazing phenomenon that we just read about, referring to that, the 18th century English hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote, Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when God, the mighty maker, died for his own creature's sin. And then we come to verse 46. Look at verse 46 with me. It says, Jesus, Jesus calling out with a loud voice. He's dying of asphyxiation, but he is calling out with a loud voice. And here's what he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, Luke tells us that he breathed his last. These are the final words of Jesus before his death. These are the last things that Jesus said before his death. I find it amazing that even as he is suffering and dying and he is about to expire, he is suffering, he is forsaken by God. Note this, his faith holds firm. His faith is intact. See, Jesus there on the cross, he is stripped of everything. He is not in a loincloth. He is stripped of everything he has except for the promises of God. And so what does he do? He prays Psalm 31, verse 5. Father, Father, he cries out, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, this is, this is beyond a doubt. This is the darkest hour since the creation of the world. But in that darkest of all hours, Jesus trusts his Father that he will not be forsaken forever. So he surrenders himself. He surrenders himself entirely into the faithful hands of God, his Father. I pray this morning, I pray that you would hear words of great hope in this, in this verse. There are words of great hope because, because many of us Due to life circumstances, many of us are tempted to feel that God has abandoned us. Many of us, due to dark times, sometimes even wonder if God hears our prayers. Let me just say this, that Jesus knows exactly what that is like. 
Jesus knows exactly what it's like at our lowest point, at our darkest point. But, this is the good news, but he was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear that. Jesus was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. That is the message of Good Friday. Phil Riken writes, Even when we cannot see the light and prayer seems like nothing more than a cry in the dark, we are called to trust the Father as Jesus did. By faith, we yield everything up to God, surrendering everything we are and everything we have to Him for all eternity. So let me ask you this morning, are you confident? Are you confident that your life and your death are in the faithful hands of God? Let's look at the second point. The centurion's verdict. Now back, if we were to look back in Luke, in chapter 23, verses 13 and 14, we would read this account of Pontius Pilate. He was the governor in, uh, uh, the Roman governor in Judea at that time. And Pontius Pilate um, gathers people together. Here's what it says in verses 13 and 14. He called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Now, we know as we read on that... Pilate did not stick with that verdict. As we read on, we see that he is swayed by the crowd. The crowd was swayed by the religious leaders, and Pilate was swayed by the crowd who were demanding that Jesus be crucified and killed. And so, like many other politicians since, Pontius Pilate caved into the pressure of the people. And then here in our text, in verse 47, we see another declaration, the second declaration in a matter of hours, another declaration of Jesus' blamelessness. It says, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Now imagine such a thing. This centurion was almost certainly one of those who had led Jesus to the place of the skull and had personally participated in his crucifixion. This man. And now after watching over hours as as it had all transpired, as he watched the way Jesus died, and as he witnessed the darkness that fell over the land... This man is moved to declare that Jesus is innocent. Jesus does not deserve to die. 
Now, this is a very important point that's developed much, uh, much more fully in the rest of the New Testament. For example, 1 Peter 2.22 says that Jesus committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 4.15 teaches that Jesus is our high priest who has been tempted in every way as we have been tempted, yet he alone is without sin. 1 John 3 verse 5 says that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. And one of my favorite verses in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15 21 it tells us that God made him who knew no sin that is Jesus to be sin for us so that in, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now the significance of this point, the significance of Jesus' sinlessness comes into sharper focus for us when we understand, we realize that he died not because he was guilty, but because we are guilty. Jesus didn't deserve to die. We deserve to die. See, the whole Bible, from Genesis 3 onwards, the whole Bible teaches that all of humanity, all of us without exception, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark. And on the cross, here's the good news this morning. On the cross, Jesus died as our substitute. He was punished and he was forsaken so that we wouldn't have to be. In Jesus' death, the judgment of God and the mercy of God are on full display for us to see and believe. Consider what John Stott writes. He says, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, and your death I am dying. And he says that, the cross says that to us, not to make us miserable, not to condemn us, but to save us. A doctor gives a diagnosis of a serious medical condition not to ruin your life, but to save it. And so this morning, let me encourage you. Let me plead with you. I've been praying for you this morning. This morning, look. Look with the eyes of your heart. Look by faith. Look to Christ's death and find complete forgiveness. I mean, say that again. Look to Christ dying for you on the cross, bearing your guilt, bearing your shame, bearing God's punishment against your sin. Look to Him and receive complete 
forgiveness for, for all of your guilt and sin. On a very dark Friday afternoon in April A.D. 33, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. And almost 2,000 years later, all those who believe remember that day and call it good. Good Friday. It is good because even while powerful people conspired to kill the Son of God, God was at work, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians God was at work reconciling the world to himself. Even as people were perpetrating history's greatest evil, God was bringing about history's greatest good. That brings us to the third point. The Father's welcome. The Father's welcome. Earlier on, you may have noticed if you're following along in the passage printed in your bulletin, earlier on I skipped a little phrase. It's easy to miss there. It, 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 it might not make a lot of sense. But we need to come back to it because it's full of hope. And it's where I want to leave us this morning. Look at verse 45 with me. This statement is made... And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, to understand the full significance of this, we have to understand something of, of the, the, the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, this ancient temple in Jerusalem that probably few of us ever think about. Well, to understand the significance of this torn curtain in the temple, we have to understand a bit about the temple. See, inside the temple, there's two rooms. There's two rooms. There's an outer room, which is called the holy place, and then there's an inner room, which is called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And these two rooms, this is important, these two rooms were separated by a giant, thick, heavy curtain, even larger than this curtain behind me. Here's what Hebrews 9, verses 6 and 7 say about those two rooms. It explains that the Israelite priests, here it is, entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. So they would come and go to minister in the temple. But then verse 7 says, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people. So all the priests are, are permitted to come into the outer room, but access to the inner room, this is the point here, access to the inner room is severely restricted. Hebrews tells us that only the high priest could go behind the curtain into the most holy place because that is where God's presence was made manifest. And we cannot just saunter into God's presence. Hebrews 9 also says that the high priest was only allowed to enter the room 
once a year. They had the Day of Atonement once a year. One day a year, the high priest could enter in behind the veil to the most holy place. And it also tells us that he was never allowed to enter without bringing blood. So the high priest who represents the people had to bring the blood of goats and calves with him in order to offer sacrifices for sins. That's what Hebrews 9 says. Now, these animals that were sacrificed and they took the blood from and then they brought it in and they offered it on the altar inside the Holy of Holies. This, to all who participated, who all who saw the animals sacrificed and as they witnessed the animals being bled, all of them realized that this, this, was, this was a sign, this was a notice that the wages of sin is death. Someone has to die for our sin. Now the problem is, if you think about it for a moment, the problem is that animal sacrifices can never take away human sins. Animal sacrifices cannot atone for human sins. And because the Day of Atonement was repeated year after year, that problem never went away. The guilt of sin was never completely dealt with. And that is because the, the, the temple, the Israelite priesthood, the whole system of sacrificial offerings under the Old Covenant, all of it, was only ever provisional. It was provisional. It was pointing to something much, much better that was coming. And that brings us back to Luke 23, verse 45, and that torn curtain in the temple. Why was it torn? What does it mean? This is important. I know this has been maybe a little difficult to follow, but lean in for two more minutes. See, here's the thing. The New Testament book of Hebrews, it explicitly teaches that the temple in Jerusalem, with that most holy place and the curtain and the holy place, that the book of Hebrews teaches that these things were only earthly copies of eternal and transcendent realities. You see, God would indeed manifest His presence in the Holy of Holies in the temple, but that doesn't mean that that is where God lives. The Bible is very clear on this. Acts 17, 24 summarizes what the whole Bible teaches. Here's what it says. The God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples made by human hands. See, if we were using spatial language, which the Bible does sometimes, we would say God is above the creation. He transcends this entire created order. And that temple and those rooms and that curtain was only an, an earthly copy of a heavenly reality, of a heavenly temple. 
Now, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark report something interesting about the curtain. It says that the curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. Now, what do we, what do we learn from that? Well, I think it's obvious. We learn from that that God the Father is the one who miraculously tore the curtain. God the Father is the one that tore it open and forever opened the way, made a way into his glorious presence. That's what that means. There's no more restricted access to God. Through Jesus Christ, God has set out a welcome mat for all who come to him by faith. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he made a complete, not a provisional atonement, not a provisional sacrifice for sins, but he made a complete and a final sacrifice for sins. He is the last high priest. And he offered a better sacrifice in a holy, heavenly temple where 1 Timothy 6 tells us God dwells in unapproachable light. See, through Jesus' death, he paid a debt that he did not owe because we all owe a debt that we cannot pay. And because of his sacrifice, the temple in Jerusalem is forever rendered obsolete. Now, and it's all over the New Testament now, Texts like Ephesians 2.18 say that through faith in Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. He's our high priest. He's our mediator. He has gone in through the curtain in the holy of holies, in the heavenly temple. Here's what Hebrews 10.19 says. Let this hit you. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way opened up for us. This morning, this morning as we gather together and we contemplate and we consider the meaning of Good Friday, let me say this unequivocally to you this morning. God is inviting you into his presence. God is welcoming you into his presence through the cross of Christ. God is wooing you into his presence. Please, please do not exclude yourself by rejecting God's welcome. Hear his welcome. Embrace his welcome. And look to Christ and come to your Father who is in heaven. Way back in the fourth century, St. Augustine prayed. He said, God, you made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This morning, God invites us to come to him and find rest for our restless, weary, troubled, confused hearts. 
God invites us. God invites us to turn from the darkness of our selfishness and sin and through Jesus Christ to enter into the light and the love and the joy and the reconciliation of his own presence. Believe it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, thank you for giving us your Son. I pray that you would give all of us here faith to hear your your welcome, your welcome addressing us personally and particularly to come to enter in behind the veil, to enter into your glorious presence, knowing that we are forgiven. We are redeemed. We are reconciled. We are adopted. We are, we are members of your household. So we come. We come not as strangers. We come as children. And we come to our Father to bask in the light of his smile and his love, and his goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.